You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. If you have Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Nehemiah chapter 10. You can begin to, uh, to make your way there. It's actually this morning um, no coincidence uh, that we've arrived in this 10th chapter of the book of Nehemiah as we're rapidly approaching our, the close of this series and the close of this book here in just a few weeks. Uh, Nehemiah 10 recounts the people of Jerusalem, uh, the, the Israelites, the Jews, the, the Jews there in Jerusalem, making a covenant to be faithful to God and to follow the commands of God. Uh, and so on this day, when we've welcomed a number of men and women into covenant membership with our church, uh, today we'll get to see some of the parallels between what we do, what we seek to do here as a, as a church community, and what these men and women did in Jerusalem about 2,500 years ago. So let's jump right in uh, to Nehemiah this morning. I'm actually going to back up and start in the last verse of Nehemiah 10. I'm going to skip over a lot of names. I'm going to spare you the butchering of the pronunciation that I would give to those. Uh, and so just listen closely. I'll, I'll give you some prompts for, for where we are. But I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love. Nehemiah, beginning in chapter 9, verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our priests, our Levites, our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Chapter 10, skip down to verse 28 with me. The rest of the people... The priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath uh, to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord and his rules and statutes. Verse 30, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell, we will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day. And we will forego the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every, the exaction of every debt. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel, and for all the work of the house of our God. We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God according to our Father's houses at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God as it is written in the law. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring, the ho- to, bring to the house of our God, to the priests who minister in the house of our God, the firstborn of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, and the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks. And to bring the first of our dough and our, and our contributions, the fruit of every tree, the wine and the oil, to the priests, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all our towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe of the tithes to the house of our God, 
to the chambers of the storehouse. Verse 39, for the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chambers where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. And this is God's word. Let me pray for us. God of mercy, you promised, and we're, we rejoice that we've already gotten to see this and celebrate it some today. You promised never to break your covenant with us. Amid all the changing words of our generation, we pray that you would now speak your eternal word that does not change. Enable us to respond to your gracious promises with faithful and obedient lives. We pray this through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. What is a covenant? What is a covenant? A covenant is a binding. It's an agreement. It's a, a pledge, a commitment between two or more parties. And in light of Nehemiah chapter 10, three things for us to consider about covenant this morning. The need for covenant, the content of covenant, and the keeping of covenant. The need for it, the content of it, and the keeping of it. So first, the need for covenant. The need for covenant. Uh, there have been a lot of amazing advancements throughout the history of humanity. But far and away, one of the worst has got to be the addition of the maybe option on an RSVP. <laughs> you agree with me on that? The maybe option on an RSVP. Are you coming? Maybe. What does that mean? What does that mean? If you're planning something, this is the bane of your existence. It means, among other things, that we are a society averse to commitment. We are people who like to keep our options open, who don't like to obligate ourselves to things. Instead of saying, I will or I won't, we would rather say things like, man, that would be great if I could be there. I'll, I'll try. Maybe. Maybe. In some parts of life, that, that's not particularly detrimental. Now, you can be wishy-washy about attending most events, for example, and it's really not the end of the world. But relationally, relationally, maybes are catastrophic. Are you with me? Are you going to be there for me when I need you? Maybe. Maybe. How fast does trust evaporate? How fast does shame enter in and pile on? when that's our posture, when that's our response to one another. Relationships are incomplete, woefully incomplete, without commitment. And of course, some relationships, rightfully, are, are more meaningful than others. Marriages, for example, deep friendships. And as people who are created in the image of God, we are made above all else for relationship with God himself. That means that our lives are designed for commitment to him. And we sometimes call this worship. Uh, we sometimes call this devotion. But another incredibly important word, a word that we find throughout scripture, is the word covenant. Nehemiah 10 is a covenant renewal. And I'd invite you to think this morning, especially if you've been with us in this series, think for a moment how incomplete Nehemiah 8 and 9 would be without Nehemiah 10. James Boyce once wrote that there are three stages to spiritual revival. The first stage is a hearing of the word of God. And so we saw that back in Nehemiah chapter 8 and again in Nehemiah chapter 9. 
The second stage is formal confession. Seeing the perfection and the goodness of God in his word specifically moves us to confess the ways that we fail, the ways that we fall infinitely short of that. And so last week in chapter 9, we saw this comprehensive, big-picture confession by the people there in, in Jerusalem. The third stage, then, is a formal commitment to change. And so in the Christian life, in the life of faith, repentance is not only acknowledging our sin and asking for the mercy of God and the forgiveness of God because of it. Repentance is also a turning. It's a turning away from sin and a turning toward faithfulness. And so at the end of their prayer of confession, in chapter 9, verse 38, the people begin to make this firm commitment. They begin to make this covenant. For centuries prior to Nehemiah, the people of God are those who have made covenants with God to worship him alone, to follow his laws, to follow his ways as he's revealed them. And then at key points in their history, this covenant is renewed by the people. That's especially true when there has been a, a grievous violation of it, a breaking of that covenant. And so the ancestors of these men and women in Jerusalem, they broke that covenant with God. If we read throughout the history of Israel, they, they worshipped other gods. They mistreated the poor and the vulnerable in their midst. They violated the Sabbath. In their relationship with God, they were, in a word, unfaithful or faithless. And they were conquered, ultimately, they were exiled by Assyria and by Babylon as a consequence of that covenant breaking. So there's a real need to now renew this covenant that's been broken. There's a real need to reclaim and reaffirm and reestablish that now as God's people in this time and place, they will again be faithful to God. They will again follow him. What they want through all of that, they want a restored relationship with their God. As one scholar puts it, with the renewal of the covenant, they came into a renewed relationship with God, a relationship of obedience to the precepts of his law. It was not only a legal obligation, but a living reality. Because with the renewal of the covenant, they came into a living relationship with the Lord. Here's the point. God's law is not only a mirror to reflect our failures. It absolutely is that. That's an essential part of what the law of God does. It shows us our need for God's mercy. It drives us to him. But the law of God is also a lamp. It's a guide. It's something that shows us the way. And we're meant to be not only hearers, but doers of the word. Not just people who are dependent on God, though certainly we are, but obedient people. And our relationship with God is functionally dead. It's functionally non-existent if we have no intention to actually follow him, if we have no intention to actually commit ourselves to him and be obedient to him. And this is true for the people of God in, in every age. Uh, there are important differences for Christians who see certain aspects of God's law fulfilled in Jesus. We don't, for example, still offer sacrifices like the law stipulated for the Israelites. But Jesus himself gives us plenty of commands to follow. If you just start, for example, with the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter, uh, chapters 5 through 7, uh, there's a lot of commands just in that text of what, what our lives are supposed to actually look like. Or in the parable of the Good Samaritan, Jesus doesn't only use that parable to show us how short we fall 
of loving our neighbor, of the standard of God, he concludes that whole parable by saying what? Go and do likewise. Like actually go and do this now. Pursue this. So there is a real beauty to what we have experienced together as a church as we've welcomed men and women into covenant. As you heard, they've made commitments, as have any of you who stood up and looked them in the eye and received them. We've obligated ourselves to some things, to believe in and to follow Jesus, to be present in each other's lives, uh, to live for God and his kingdom together in this region that God has put us. It really moves us from a maybe to a yes. It moves us from people who just sit next to each other on a Sunday occasionally to people who are in living relationships with God and with one another. And I would hope that you've already gotten to experience some of this, but as you reflect on it today and throughout the rest of the afternoon, I would invite you to to rejoice in this reality. Praise God that we get to do this. And for all of us who have done that, Step into it. Step into this, not because you have to, but because you get to. Because covenant is the substance of real relationships, living relationships. It always has been, it always will be the relational glue between God and his people and then among the people of God. This is the need. This is the need for covenant. Second, let's talk about the content of covenant. In the ancient Near East, a covenant would include three primary components. Uh, It would first list the parties involved. It would then uh, lay out the obligations or the commitments that those parties are making. And then there would be blessings and and curses laid out for keeping or breaking that covenant. And we see these components here in Nehemiah 10. So first, there's a listing of the parties, and I spared you my terrible pronunciation of those names in the first 27 verses, but a few quick notes on those. Uh, Nehemiah's name is listed first. As the leader, as the governor, he, he sets the pace. He says, okay, we're going to make this commitment together to God. I'll go first. Then there are 21 names of priests, 17 names of Levites, 21 chiefs of the people who were already written about in the book of Ezra, people that were known already in the community there in Jerusalem. And then finally, 23 additional names of families or leaders that maybe were added to their number over those years between Ezra and and Nehemiah. That's already a long list, those, those first 27 verses. But then to be even more thorough, verse 28 goes even broader. It says the rest of the priests and the Levites and the gatekeepers and the singers and the temple servants, the the same groups, if you were with us back in Nehemiah chapter 7, it's the same groups that were listed there. Also, it says, all who have separated themselves from the people of the lands to the law of God, which is incredible. What that means is non-Israelites. There's a place in this covenant for people of all tongues and tribes and nations, not just those who have descended from Abraham. And finally, all who have knowledge and understanding, everybody capable of understanding this covenant is included. This is really a covenant between God and all of his people in Jerusalem. Following the parties then, there's a very brief mention in verse 29 of the curses. What's going to happen if we break this covenant? Uh, In other parts of scripture, the blessings and curses for keeping or breaking a covenant with God are spelled out in a lot more detail. 
Uh, one of the best places to find that, if you're interested in learning more about that, is when King Solomon prays to dedicate the temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. In that prayer, he, he lists, he spells out with really prophetic insight all the ways that God's people would eventually break their covenant with God and the curses that would come upon them when they did that. Famine, death, being conquered by other nations, exile. And so, standing in that exact same location where Solomon prayed, now 500 years later, there's not really a need to detail all of the curses here in Nehemiah 10. Why not? Because these people have been living them for their entire lives. These people have been living under the curses of a broken covenant for their entire lives. They know what the curses are. The longest part then of this covenant, the rest of the chapter really, are specific commitments that the people obligate themselves to. And as it says there, it's, it's a recommitment to obey all the laws that God had revealed through Moses to his people. One of them is to not marry people from other nations. And the concern here is purity of worship. Purity of worship. Israel's history is filled with examples of how marrying people who worship other gods will draw your heart away and you'll become someone who worships another god who is not God. Like Samson, for example, or like Solomon even, the one who prayed that great prayer at the temple. Here's the thing though. Israel's history is also filled with examples of outsiders being folded into the people of God. Like Rahab, like Ruth, Rahab was a Canaanite in Jericho. Ruth was a Moabite. And they aren't just welcomed into the people of God. They marry Israelites, and then they feature prominently in the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So this is, the issue here is not race. It, it's religion. It's the devotion of your heart. It's about your relationship with the one true God. And it's exactly why the Apostle Paul will write years later in 2 Corinthians that a Christian should never marry someone who is not a Christian. It's the same principle applied in light of the work of Jesus. Second, the people here obligate themselves to keep the Sabbath and to keep the Sabbath year. And we read there that, that on days meant for rest, they were finding these, these loopholes like letting other nations, people from other nations, do all the work and then just buying the goods from them. Well, we're not working. They're working. We're just buying the stuff from them. And again, the issue here is being in a living relationship with God. To rest from your work requires trust in God, requires a relationship with him. It requires trust not to plant and harvest and to forgive all debts every seventh year. Like, you won't back your way into that conclusion through economic principles. You won't back your way into not planting and harvesting every seventh year, even by wisdom. You'll only do that if you truly, functionally believe that it is God who upholds the world and not your own work. Third, then, and by far the longest, are a series of obligations about financially supporting the ministry that happened at the temple there in Jerusalem. And we won't get into the details because we don't have time to this morning. But they obligate themselves to both uh, the tithes, uh, the temple tax, which the law already has required in generations prior. They also obligate themselves to offerings beyond what the law requires. And at this point in history, uh, it's a really small number of people in Jerusalem to take on an obligation of that magnitude. And up to this point, as we've read in this book already, 
uh, they, have been, they have been relying heavily upon the generosity of Persian kings. Persian kings have been giving them materials and animals and money to carry out this work, to carry out the ministry there at the temple in Jerusalem. But what we're learning here as they make this covenant is that funding the worship of God is not the responsibility of governments. It's not the responsibility of other nations that don't worship God. It's the responsibility of God's own people. And one present day implication for that. If the day should ever come when churches in our country could no longer claim a tax-exempt status, it gets threatened every number of years. Probably someday it'll happen. If that day were to come, that will be frustrating, that will be discouraging, that will be practically expensive. But on the other hand, let that day come. Let that day come. It is not our government's responsibility, it's ours. And it's not only our responsibility, it's our privilege to financially provide for ministry and to provide for the worship of the one true God in this world. If that day should come, I would call us as Christians to double down and keep giving, maybe even to give more as a declaration that we have no king but Jesus. We have no king but Jesus. What's the content of covenant? It's that God's people will again follow him. They will again walk in his ways. They will again live a life of devotion and obedience. It's a series of we will and we will not. And in this way, it's like the covenants that you and I make in those fundamental critical relationships in our lives. First and foremost with God. For any of us who are married, you make a covenant with your spouse you commit to be and to do certain things for your husband or for your wife. And then in the local church, even as we've done today, we covenant to do and be certain things for God, for one another, and for the world. And because these relationships are so dear to us, or so important to us, because covenant is that relational glue that holds them together, we obligate ourselves to costly commitments just like these Israelites did. But it's one thing to make a covenant. It's a completely different thing to keep a covenant. And so third and finally, let's consider the keeping of covenant. Did you get a little fired up a minute ago? I got a little fired up, especially about the we have no king but, but Jesus line. I was really excited about that line this whole week as I was getting, getting close to that. But when, when our eyes are reawakened to the worth of these relationships, our passion stirs, does it not? We're ready to pay the cost. We're ready to lay down our lives. We're ready to obligate ourselves to costly things. And you can sense that as the Israelites make this covenant. This crescendo builds to that last line in verse 39. We will not neglect the house of our God. It reminds me of that Under Armour commercial from like 15 years ago. If anybody remembers that, where the football team's getting all pumped up together and they say, we must protect this house. This is like the Israel, this is the predecessor to all of that. That's where Under Armour stole it from. We will not neglect the house of our God. The thing is, they will. That's exactly what they do. And not like a generation or two later, by the end of this book. In fact, by the time this book comes to a close, they will have broken every one of the commitments they have made in this chapter. Chapter 13, verse 4, one of the storerooms where they're supposed to be keeping all of these contributions for the temple, they turn it into a lounge for Tobiah. 
the same Tobiah who's been an enemy of Nehemiah in this work throughout the book. They kind of create a green room for him with a couch and stuff in the temple in one of the storerooms. Chapter 13, verse 10, the people stop providing portions for the Levites and singers so that the Levites and singers have to abandon ministry in Jerusalem and return to the fields to work to make a living for themselves. And Nehemiah cries out, why is the house of God forsaken? Chapter 13, verse 15, the people work on the Sabbath and they buy and sell on the Sabbath, exactly the opposite of what they've committed to in chapter 10. And then chapter 13, verse 23, they again are marrying people from other nations, worshiping other gods, neglecting to teach their children their identity as the people of God. We will not neglect the house of our God. Yes, you will. Yes, you will. Because as people, we're fickle. We have short memories. And our spirits are perhaps willing, but our flesh is weak. And our intentions are perhaps good, but our follow-through is abysmal. And five seconds after we renew our covenantal relationships, a thousand other things begin to compete for our heart's devotion. If you aren't already thoroughly convinced of this from your own life, from your own story, learn today from Nehemiah 10 that our stirred passions, our resolutions, our commitments will never be sufficient to keep the covenants that we make in our lives. I mean, what about their history tells these Israelites that they are going to be able to keep this covenant that they are making? How do you pray a prayer like Nehemiah chapter 9 recounting the history of your people's failures and conclude by saying, but we're different. We're different. This time we'll be different. Really? Really? And do we not do the same exact thing in our lives? God, I will live for you always. But no, we won't. If we did, we would be sinless and perfect people. Husband or wife, I will love you through every circumstance. No, we won't. If we did, every marriage would always be thriving and perfectly fulfilling. And we know experientially, they are not. Church, I promise to walk out this Christian life with you, humbly receiving input and correction and striving for unity and peace together in our church. Well, great news. I guess we're free of conflict now, forever. When we fail, our reflex is to get fired up, to, to stir our passion and to recommit. I'll do better next time. And we do that over and over again until we either delude ourselves into thinking it's working or we give up in despair and we quit altogether. But church, the power to keep a covenant does not come from within you. It must come from outside of you. It must come from the God who keeps covenant with us. Our hope can never be in our own ability to keep covenants. It must be in the God who keeps his. And this is the greatness of the God of heaven and earth. He binds himself to his people. He makes, unlike us, a real covenant, not merely a contract. In a contract, the parties sign on so long as it's mutually beneficial. And they say to one another, well, I'll do my part as long as you'll do your part. But the minute that you don't, the minute that it's not beneficial to me, I'm gone. A covenant is fundamentally different. It says that even when you don't uphold your end, I'm going to uphold mine. And so when God says to his people over and again in scripture, I will be your God and you will be my people, 
It means that even when we don't uphold our end, which is all the time, it means even when it's not mutually beneficial to God, which is all the time, God is not going anywhere. He is still in it, upholding his end. And what's more, this covenant-keeping God and all of the covenant-breaking by the people of God leads to the costliest, least mutually beneficial decision in the history of the world. In the person of Jesus, God obligates himself to dwell among the covenant-breakers like you and me. to to live a a perfectly faithful life the way we could not. And because covenant breaking always comes with a curse, to take that curse upon himself. Deuteronomy chapter 21 writes, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. On the cross, Jesus took the curse of our covenant breaking upon himself so that all of the blessings of his own covenant keeping might be ours. Think about the unimaginable love and grace of that. God makes a covenant with us, and he not only upholds his end, seeing that we are unable thoroughly to uphold ours, he says, I'll uphold yours for you. I will step into the world and uphold your end for you. I will take the curse of your covenant breaking upon myself so that the blessings of my covenant keeping are now yours. There is no covenant like the one that God keeps with us. Because of Jesus, there is nothing that can separate us. Nothing that will make him stop pursuing the living relationship that we have with him. And it's so much so that the Apostle Paul can write words like 2 Timothy 2, if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Our covenants are still critical as image bearers of this covenant-making God, we are still meant to obligate and commit ourselves to God and one another, to have that relational glue. But the only chance that you and I have to keep any of that is this covenant that God has made with us. When we are faithful, he is faithful. And when we are faithless, thanks be to God, he is still faithful. There is no relational glue, there is no relational cement like that. So may we be a covenant-making, covenant-keeping people. May our lives, may our covenants always mirror the covenant love of God. But even when they don't, even when they don't, may we fix our eyes on Jesus. Because through him, God will never leave us or forsake us. He will again, even in those moments at our worst, will say to us, will bind himself again to us, I will be your God and I will make you my people. Amen. Let me pray for us. We praise you, God, our Father, for making your divine truth real to us in Jesus Christ, and not only making your truth real to us, but stepping into this world and keeping the covenant that we could not keep and absorbing the curse that was rightfully meant to be put on us for breaking that covenant. We ask this morning that what we do and how we live and the way that we love one another, the way that we pursue covenant love with you and with one another and in this world would be increasingly a worthy response to what you have done for us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. 
To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.